Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Genesis chapter 1, and I'll talk a bit about why here in just a bit, why the break from Romans. First, uh, uh, a couple of things uh, while I've got a chance here. One is, um, so when we move from this building into the next, we've got some renovations we're going to be doing in here. Uh, We have asked Mr. Daryl White, a member of the church, one of the deacons, if he would be willing to lead up this renovation project. Uh, He has graciously responded, and so uh, he will be coordinating, ordering, uh, orchestrating, getting things uh, organized. So if he comes to recruit you, the answer is always yes, happy to, Uh, but he'll be asking for some different teams to be built and things like that, so know that that's kind of taking place. And then um, one more note. Um, It is important for us to know why we do what we do, the philosophy behind why we do what we do. So you, you church family, you know it is our normal diet. We take passages of the Bible. uh, We study what does it say? What does it mean? And we study through books of the Bible. But it is also necessary from time to time to take even just one specific truth and to explore its, its fuller application, to meditate deeply on one truth and to try to come to more than just six inches in the soil for the roots to go down, but to go deeper and, and deeper um, in order to understand it. And so we're going to do that today with the subject of what the Bible has to say concerning male and female, something that I am guessing that in the years to come, we may need to be doing more regularly than I've done in the past. So in the past, you know, once every three years or so, we would have a sermon on the distinction between male and female, okay? We are now uh, in a point in uh, our culture where we may need to be doing more talking about this because it is a battle that the Lord has uh, put in our eyes, in, in our lives, and so it is there. It seems right now, that the animosity towards God's order in creation is picking up steam. It seems that every single week there is some new shocking thing that happens in the culture in, in this regard that, that even just 10 years ago, this, this thing would have been talked about for years and yet now it's happening every single week and there are even some more elements that have happened even in this town that I'll be telling you about. So there is need for us, the people of God, to know what the Bible says on this truth, this doctrine, this subject deeply, because this is the day God chose for us to live. This is the battle that is before us. Whether we like it or not, these are the truths we must be engaging with. So we need to know it, live it, and defend it. Defend it. Speak it 
clearly to a culture that is rejecting it. So that's the why behind it. So today we're going to talk about male and female. Next week, it is the plan that we come back and we're going to talk some about the transgenderism and gender theory uh, that has been uh, going on in our culture. And then the week after that, the intention is to come back again and and talk about what is uh, most probably the gravest sin of our culture. And that is the murder of the unborn and what is the role of the people of God in this. So quick break from the book of Romans, and those are some of the whys behind it. If you will, look to Genesis 1. I'm going to read verses 26 and 27, and then we'll pray. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we see your creation and we glorify you for it. We see the order, the wisdom, the beauty the striking beauty that you have put in creation and we want to worship you for it. And Lord, we want all the ends of the earth to worship you as you are worthy of. So we ask, oh God, that you will give us your people help. You have ordained it that it's a particular battle in our day, that there, are, uh, con- there is confusion over these issues, these truths. Many around us are believing lies and are coming to absolute heartache and misery from not understanding clear truths of what you have made. Help us, your people, to understand deeply. I do ask that today we will come to a deeper understanding of these truths. I pray that we will then implement and live them more fully, but also, oh God, that you'll equip us, that you'll train our hands for war. You'll train us to be able to go out into a dark, lost world and speak your truth, your gospel, and call people to the light. So God, we pray that you will bless Please bless the preaching of your word. Please bless the hearing of your word. Bless our children in the next room as they recite their catechisms. Please, God, give grace. And we ask that in all of it, your word abounds and your church be built. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Every great story is the gospel. If that sounds familiar, that's how I started the sermon last week. And we spent some time talking about how various genres of literature and story, uh, the stories that resonate through the centuries, they have ways uh, that they have shadows of the gospel in them. We mentioned that the gospel is the great epic of history, the great adventure saga, the greatest poetry ever written. There are themes like redemption and and the hero who sacrifices himself, all of it in the gospel. And we also mentioned that the gospel is the great romance of history. And that God has specifically put this desire in our hearts and in the great stories of old, there are ways that shadows of the gospel are in them of the Savior who came from heaven to pursue his bride. As you think of the great love stories of history, why is it that in in all of those stories, well, for one, it's between a boy and a girl, shocker, but also can you imagine any of the 
great love stories of old where it's the boy who is the reluctant one and it's the girl who sees his beauty and pursues him. Well, now I know that's in modern stories and really terrible modern chick flicks. I know that they exist there, but they will be forgotten to time. But the great stories of old, there's a reason why there are patterns. There are things that God has written into creation and it's beautiful. We see its beauty. But what happens when a culture chooses to hate the gospel, to hate what is beautiful because it is beautiful, and to pretend it's not beautiful? What happens when a culture invents ugly things and then sets them forth as beautiful? What happens is chaos and an ugly chaos. We are living in such a day. It is the case, like, like John 1 and, and John 3 says, that men hate the light. Humans whose sinful hearts lean away from God, it is the standard in every place, men hate the light. Okay, that was true 2,000 years ago. It was true 5,000 years ago. It's true today. But there are periods and places in history where the intensity of the hatred towards the light is stronger. We are living in a day where the rejection of God's light, the rejection of God's order, it is increasing in its intensity. There is an increasing list of beautiful things that our culture is rejecting, hating and rejecting one after another. Things that we just kind of assumed were commonly held by other humans are being questioned and rejected. Things like the basic definitions and distinction between male and female. I mean, can you imagine anything that is more basic than that? While our culture believes it is getting smarter, we actually find ourselves having to say sentences I never imagined I'd have to say as a preacher to say sentences so simple and clear that it is just shocking that we have to say men and women are different and things of this regard. Our culture is rejecting the definitions of male and female and of the strengths, weaknesses, and distinctions that God has made. Several years back, a, a popular children's movie came out and before I tell you what it is, let me give a little bit of parenthesis here, okay? This is going to be one of those moments that you might be tempted to just call Pastor Josh an old fuddy-duddy and just forget everything that I have to say, okay? I, I'm asking you to hear me to the end, okay? Um, I, I used to hate it when my dad would point out the ungodly worldviews in movies, okay? And as an infinitely wise 16-year-old, I would say to my dad, Dad, it's just a movie. Brilliant, I know. But it's not. I was dead wrong. Movies aren't just movies. Stories aren't just stories. Okay? Stories come from worldviews. And stories teach worldview. Stories affirm worldview. Stories influence 
worldview. If if a child were raised with 10,000 stories that all promoted some idea about the the moon being made of blue cheese, that would be formed. Stories come from worldviews and they teach worldview. They really do, no matter how much we want to think that they don't, adults as well, okay? And it is um, the case that story writers almost always, I'll at least say it conservatively like that, but it's probably the case that just always story writers have an agenda. I mean, if I write a story, I have an agenda. I want to influence people towards truth. Story writers have an agenda. The goal is to influence, and the writers of this particular movie that I'm going to mention actually publicly (coughs) boasted that they were writing a story that broke the mold for the love story and that, that changed the, the, the typical gender stereotypes. And so they, they publicly boasted about it. So listen, this isn't one of those listen to the Kiss album backwards and you'll hear Satan speaking to you kind of thing, okay? Like this is the writers publicly boasted and bragged about what they were doing. They were proud of themselves in Disney's Frozen. The writers intentionally wrote a story where the girl didn't need saved by any man. She believed in herself and she saved herself. She was not won by the pursuit of any man. She was the progressor. And part of my point for using that illustration is, you know, number one, don't misunderstand what I'm getting at. Uh, Don't misunderstand to say, well, Pastor Josh is trying to lay down certain laws about what we can and can't watch in our homes. That's not at all what I'm trying to do. Okay, you got to figure those things out. One of my points is, look how subtle it all is. Look how sneaky it all is. If the writers hadn't boasted about it, it, it often would have been missed by many. Think about this. Do, do I th- and do I think that your kids are going to hate Jesus if they watch the movie Frozen? No, my kids watched it. But, but, but I am trying to bring some awareness to this right here. Is there a danger when 10,000 voices are all saying the same kinds of messages and it comes in all kinds of forms at school and in songs and in stories and in movies. Is there a danger there? Yes, there is. And we need to know that there is. And then speaking of the battle for children, there is something I need to make you aware of. Um, I brought a little booklet with me here to the pulpit. This little booklet was passed out uh, in recent weeks in this town's elementary school. Elementary school. This isn't out in California. This is hometown. This is here. This is a sex ed little booklet. Um, By the way, you notice that some of the pages are ripped there. Uh, That's because the young man who received this uh, in protest ripped it. I'm proud of him. It's the work of a little reformer in in training. (laughs) But I want want to read one page, just one page of this little booklet that was handed out in this town in recent days. The title of the page here is Sex, Gender, and Society. It says, let's start with a few definitions. Biological sex. Your biological sex is based on the genitals you're born with and the chromosomes you have. At birth, most people are either male or female. Gender identity. This is about how you feel and how you think about yourself. 
when it comes to gender. Everyone's gender identity is unique to them and should be respected. Gender roles and stereotyping. These are socially constructed. They relate to characteristics and behaviors that are typically thought to go alongside a person's biological sex. They can often stereotype boys and girls. You might have started to notice that people expect you to look, act, or behave in a certain way just because you're a boy. We call this stereotyping. Don't let society limit you. Your biological sex shouldn't define what you can or can't do. And stereotyping someone because of their gender or thinking that someone is better or worse because of their gender can be very harmful. Remember, you don't have to let these norms limit you. Boys can be whoever they want to be. Stay strong and believe that you can achieve anything. Christian, we are living in days of chaos. And the chaos just isn't just out there in Europe somewhere. And one of the reasons why, 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 why this sermon? I was asked that before, before today. Like, is there something that happened that prompted this? And part of the answer is yes. You know, when there's crazy people who believe something crazy way off somewhere and it's not spreading, we don't have to talk about all that. When it comes to the hometown, when it begins to filter its way into uh, small town Indiana, then yes. That there are, there are ideologies that must be combated. We are living in days of an ugly chaos. But Christian, good news. The good news of the gospel is powerful enough to conquer this. Because remember, this isn't the first time this stuff has come. It's always a repackaging and a recycling of old ideas. It just gets reshaped over and over again. The gospel conquered these ideas back then, and it will do so again. This cultural moment will pass, okay? Because, to quote Doug Wilson, stupid don't work. You can't, you can't promote insanity and it build a thriving culture. This cultural moment will pass. But before it does, a lot of heads might roll. But Christian, you have the kingdom. So do not fear that guillotine. But what is needed is for the people of God to deeply know the truths, to live the truths, defend the truths, and speak the truths. For our day, this is one of the battles that God has put. And so what is needed is for Christians. While the world is raving about the emperor's new clothes, what is needed is for Christians to keep raising their hands, though we're spit upon when we do, and keep pointing out the dudes naked, and to keep speaking truth clearly over and over again. We need to come to robust understanding of these things. So I say that, that those parts there, partly is application, go do that. I exhort you, go do that. Go study more, much, much more than just the, the, the mere 30 minutes I'm about to talk about from here on, on out, but also by way of some introduction. So today, let's spend some time talking about male and female. I've got two simple points. You can guess them, male and female. <laughs> we begin with number one. Male. Um, to, to take us to another passage, I'll be referencing several passages. If you want to flip to a passage to look at, 1 Kings 2, 2, you might already have a bookmark there because of the scripture reading we just had, uh, very close to that. In 1 Kings 2, 2, David is on his deathbed 
and he says to his son, I'm going the way of all of the earth. And he says a powerful statement there. You see what he says to his son, Solomon, be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. First of all, dads, what a great verse to have conversations about with your sons. But let's ask the question, what is a man? What does it mean to show yourself a man? What does it mean to act like a man? I'll remind you that the New Testament uh, says similar things. In 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Paul addressing men says to men, act like men. Be strong, be courageous. What does it mean to act like a man? So gender theorists, modern gender theorists tell us that all distinctions between male and female other than parts is all socially constructed. The Bible is combating that idea, okay? It's combating sanity. But if we ask the question, if we ask the question, what is the ultimate standard of masculinity? Where do we see this? Well, let me suggest three ways in God's creation that we can see uh, what, what the standard of masculinity and what it means to act like a man. The, the, the first one and the most obvious is the one that you're expecting. The first one is this. God has given us in his word everything we need for life and godliness. God's word tells us the standard of what a man is supposed to be and what it is that makes a man different than a boy, a man different than just a male. Why, why, did, why did David say to Solomon, show yourself a man? The Bible shows us this. Now, obviously, I'm going to come back to this one, but let me suggest two others in God's world as well. The second place that we would see is this. How can we know the standard of masculinity? The second answer would be nature. And let me remind you that Paul appealed to this argument in 1 Corinthians 14. In 1 Corinthians 14, he appealed to nature when he said, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him. Now think about that. Well, what that shows is that something we've seen numerous times, like when we studied Psalm 19, God has written into creation a whole lot of truths, a whole lot of truths. That's not to negate the Bible. We need the Bible to know the message of the gospel and salvation. We need the Bible to make sense. The Bible goes way further than creation. But God has written a lot into creation. And specifically, when it comes to male and female, God has even written into creation truths that are here. Let me, let me mention just a couple as examples. And once I say them and you start thinking about it, I think you'll be able to come and see a whole lot more and make a long list. Let me just suggest two. First, in the act of sexual intimacy itself, sexual union itself, you know, God designed this and he could have designed it any way that he wanted to. He designed it that there are some sermons some poetic sermons that are demonstrated in the act of sexual union itself. Now, the, the, the fullest answer of that, 
I think there are quite a few that probably wouldn't be appropriate for the setting we're in right now. I've got a couple sermons brewing just for the men, and that might be a setting to go a little bit deeper with some graphic kinds of things. I'm going to try to keep things PG or PG 13 ish. Um, <laughs> but if you think about the sexual union itself, think about what is demonstrated in that God designed that a man gives and a woman receives. There is, even in that, a demonstration of distinctions between male and female, and it goes further than just anatomy. God does these kinds of things all the time in his creation, all the time in the Bible. All the time, God will ordain a Lord's Supper where you do something physical, but it preaches something greater. God has done the same thing in the act of sexual intimacy. For instance, it is a man's responsibility to initiate Lead, give, pursue, take responsibility, provide, etc. I'll come back to the female side when we come to that point. But consider a second, a second example from creation. Who carries and gives birth to babies? Now, let me add another parenthesis here. Uh, when Pastor Ben and I were, before we ever started being a pastor, and we imagined down the road all the things you thought you might have to preach on, there are certain sentences I never dreamed I'd have to say from a pulpit. But here we are. The female carries and gives birth to the babies. I know, we go deep here. We talk about <laughs> challenging things, okay? Uh, if you are not aware, Netflix just came out with a docuseries that they are promoting. It's called He's Expecting. Awesome, make sure you save that one. The female carries the babies and gives birth to the babies, okay? But now, who feeds the babies? God has designed this incredible, I mean, just absolutely incredible thing in that God created a woman to be able to feed her baby from her own body. This is this beautiful and glorious part of his design. Just the wisdom and the poetic beauty is just, is just so full in that. Well, let me ask you, are there conclusions that we can come to about distinctions between male and female from that? Yes. It is a man's responsibility to provide. It is a wife's responsibility to feed and nurture. God has written this stuff even into creation. Even creation cries out the order and the wisdom of God. So that was the second answer. Here's the third one. How do we know what masculinity is supposed to look like? What the standard is? Now, this might be one that you, you weren't expecting, but I do want you to see this. A fraction of the answer would be every culture develops certain ways that some small matters of masculinity are expressed. So see, in the booklet that I read to you, modern gender theorists say that all distinctions, uh, all distinctions are um, socially constructed. Socially constructed. Now listen, you remember that account of the garden when Satan tempted Eve and how he did it. Satan is the master of the half-truth. The, the, the master of um, taking what sounds like a truth and then giving it an, an, er, an errant explanation of it or saying something that's a counterfeit to the truth. 
Like a counterfeit $100 bill looks like the real thing, but it's not authentic. He's the master of these kinds of things. Well, there is a way that some of the small expressions of masculinity are different from culture to culture and the same with femininity. But that doesn't mean that the whole thing is. That's where the lie is. That's where the lie is. It's the idea that the whole distinction is socially constructed. There was a day when Scottish men wore kilts into battle, okay? And that was a manly thing to do. But if next week you men come in the door and you're wearing something similar, we might have a couple of jokes about that. Okay? Because there are some different expressions of masculinity that are there. Certain small matters like dress can be different from culture to culture. And I believe the book of Revelation shows us that we will bring some of these cultural differences into the kingdom of heaven and it will add glory to it. But let's come back to the obvious place where the authority lies. Let's come back to the Bible. The Bible teaches men to act like men and gives us the standard of masculinity. So if we ask the question, well, where does it teach that and how does that teach that? Let me kind of categorize what the Bible would have to say in, 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 I'll give you three categories. There may be more, but let me give you three categories. There's didactic instruction. And that just means that's when the Bible says something just really straight, like do this, don't do that. And it just spells it out clearly. Men are this. Men are not this. Men are to do this. That's didactic. It's just clear. It's not parable. It's not poetic. It's just straight instruction. But the Bible also uh, shows the vision of true masculinity in good and bad examples of masculinity in the Bible. And then a third one that I would point out to you is in the example of the ultimate man the God-man, the Lord Jesus. So didactic instruction would include passages like Think Ephesians 5 that Pastor Ben has been preaching through whenever he gets the, uh, the sermon time. And uh, the instruction to husbands, which say just really clear things like, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Provide for your wives. And, and the scripture shows it doesn't go the other way around. It's not the wife's responsibility to provide for the husband. It's the husband's responsibility to provide for the wife. Didactic instruction. But also think of, I think an important one is in 1 Corinthians 6 where men are told not to be effeminate. The Greek word there for effeminate means a soft man. And this is when a man acts feminine. And, and let me just say, you really do need to know that the Bible teaches this. See, before we got to this very extreme point in history, where the craziness that we're seeing is being embraced and even many within the church are being tempted to embrace crazy ideas from gender theorists. Before we ever got there, we didn't get there overnight. There was a long process of Satan setting the stage. And one of the ways he set the stage is in a shallow understanding of male and female and what is masculinity. Long before we got to this point, there were several decades of, let's be honest, Christian parents coddling little boys so that they did not grow up to be men, but instead were effeminized. And, and it set the stage for where we are even right now. Christian fathers and mothers, you need to know that with your sons, your job is to raise men. 
we are not to raise sissy boys. You are to raise warriors. You are to raise lions. You are to raise men who are courageous. And do you see what happens when the Bible is only lightly understood? When the Bible is only lightly understood and, and there's only just the basics that are just sort of accepted, what can happen is, is Christian fathers and mothers can raise their boys and tell them what it means to be a Christian is don't rob banks, but not show them that they are to grow up and able to, to, to swing a sword and to stand in, in courage. Throughout history, societies have faced the dilemma, how do we make men out of boys? Seriously, study it. Look for it. In history, the Bible provides the answer. The Bible will make men out of boys if we will read it like it is the word of the living God. So that was didactic instruction. The second one that I'll just mention very quickly. The Bible teaches men how to be men by both good and bad examples in the scripture. So think of the passage of David's mighty men from 2 Samuel 23. 2 Samuel 23, which gives us uh, some of those accounts of uh, Benaiah, who went down in a pit and killed a lion on a snowy day. Uh, think of Shema, who stood against a field full of uh, Philistines, and while everybody else was running away, he turned and took his stand and fought the whole field full. Why were we given that chapter? To give you a picture of here is masculinity to be imitated. It is to give a picture of here is a vision, here is models of biblical masculinity. And then, there are bad examples of, well, think of the Levite from the book of Judges who uh, allowed the woman to be assaulted rather than die defending her. The, the Bible provides bad examples as well. But then thirdly, I said we learn true masculinity from the ultimate man, the God-man himself, Jesus, the Lord Jesus. Now, last week, I made the argument that us men are drawn to Beowulf and Rambo and such because God has put within us a magnetism towards great masculinity and that the reason that God did this is so that we would long for the Messiah. Jesus, the Lord Jesus as a man, is the greatest man to have ever lived. Again, I know that sounds super deep, but I mean something more than just he was a good person. I mean, he is the greatest man who ever lived. Jesus was not an effeminate man. Jesus was, as a man in his life, a masculine man who gave the picture and model of what true masculinity is supposed to look like. Now, I know that as I say that, there may be some of you who are possibly objecting in your mind. And I'm gonna tell you why you object. Your enemy who hates your soul and hates Jesus and hates the gospel and hates all that is good, he hates masculinity. And he is a master of marketing. One day I was walking down the aisle in a grocery store and my wife always jokes that when I go with her, I blow the entire month's budget in one trip because I wanna buy all the food, everything that looks good. <laughs> And so I'm walking down the aisle one day and I stop and I see something and I go, ooh, I want that. And I reach for it. And the moment the words came out of my mouth, I felt like an idiot. And here's the reason why. It was the manliest box of food I've ever seen. You, you may look for this because this, this box does exist. It's, it's called Kodiak. 
okay? And on the front, it's got this picture. Yeah, I see some shaking heads. It's got this picture of this big roaring bear, and, and the background is this tactical matte black. Like, it looks super, like, tactical. You think there might be 45 shells sprinkled inside or something. Like, it's, it's the manliest box of food you've ever seen. And, and the moment that I said, I want that, I realized I had been duped by marketing. D do you know what is in the box? It's a pancake mix. <laughs> Seriously, it's a pancake mix, okay? Like, it's just like Bisquick. It's the same stuff, but it's a manly box that looks like it's manly pancakes, okay? And so I realized that in that moment, I had been duped by marketing. Okay, well, listen, here is why I give that illustration. Your enemy is a master of marketing. Marketing has a power to make us form a whole bunch of thoughts instantaneously from one image. Satan has worked very hard to market sin to look cool, the church to look dull and boring. I assure you on the day of judgment, when you see the church in all of her glory, you will not think she is dull and boring. You will see she is a miracle of God's grace. But how does he market the church on earth? Dull and boring. Satan has worked very hard to market Jesus as an effeminized shampoo model, skinny jeans wearing male, beta male, whose favorite pastime is snuggling little lambs. That is not the Lord Jesus. If David's mighty men gives us a vision of great masculinity, Jesus puts all of them to shame. If Benaiah going down into a pit to fight a lion is valiant, then what is it for Jesus to face the great lion, the roaring lion who roams the earth and hunts down souls and stare him in the faith, face and do battle? If we count it valiant, when a man looks death in the face undaunted and marches forward, then what was it when Jesus took the cross, carried it to Golgotha, and bore the weight of sin onto himself. If we count it courageous and tough, whenever a soldier hikes long miles, goes days without food and sleeps on the ground in order to march towards the battle, then when Jesus did all of those things and more while hated by the world's elite in order to go to the cross to die for souls, the souls of billions, then it is infinitely more manly. Jesus is the greatest man to have ever lived. Get the effeminized ideas out of your mind and see him for who he truly is. He fought a battle riskier and more terrifying than any of the earth. He carried a sword, not a literal one, but a figurative one. But the figurative one is not less dangerous than a literal one. He did battle against Satan and the powers of darkness. So if we ask the question, what is manliness? What is masculinity supposed to look like? Jesus answers it at every turn. The manliest men of history would stand next to Jesus and feel inferior. So look from that, let me, let me give a word of exhortation. I say this to men, but let me, let me address specifically young men in the room and say a word to you. The biblical worldview will make you a man and not a boy. The biblical and worldview, the biblical worldview informs you to look at the babyish ways of your peers, the, the eternal adolescence 
the unending playing of video games and running of responsibility and to see it for what it is. That's, that's what toddlers do. The biblical worldview calls you to rise up and be a man. The biblical worldview gives you high expectations. If you're going to be a man, you must decide to be a man. And you must decide to do the things that will make you a man. You need to grow up and prove yourself. Show yourself a man. And if your father is a biblical man, then he's going to have high expectations for you. And that's a good thing. If your father is a biblical man, then, then he won't just say the, the, the popular motto of something like, no matter what you do, I'll be proud of you. No, a biblical father is going to have some expectations for you and you are going to have to prove yourself to please him. And by the way, dads, when they do something that's worth it, you should tell them. But even if your dad doesn't say this to you, the pages of Holy Scripture do. What David said to his son Solomon, look me in the eyes, young men. Be strong and show yourself a man. This is God's call to you. And there is a vision of what true masculinity is supposed to look like. So if that's what it means to act like a man, what does it mean for a woman to act like a woman? We come to the second point now. The female. I mentioned three ways that we know the standard of, femin of masculinity with a man. And so now let me talk about three standards and pictures of femininity. What does it mean for a woman to act like a woman? Well, first scripture, you know, that is the most important and most obvious. And I'll come back to that here in just a moment. But let me rattle off a couple smaller ones as well. Second would be nature, and we already pointed some of those things out when we talked about those couple of examples, sexual union, the way God designed the female body to feed babies, etc. And there would be more that you can think of in your mind. But a third one, again, would be from culture to culture, there are some smaller ways that femininity, fem femininity is expressed. Let me give an example here. For instance... Throughout history and, and the world over, modesty has been a trait that is expected of women and I believe is evidenced even in creation by God's design. Now, modern gender theorists tell us that it's all socially constructed, that the whole you know, concept of modesty came from the patriarchy and Victorian era influence, blah, 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 blah. We know that is not true. Number one, because of the Bible most importantly. But part of what I'm arguing is God has put evidence for this even in creation. My mentor used this illustration one time. Even in tribes in the jungle, cut off from civilization and influences and such, they still promote modesty amongst women. Now it will often look very different but it still promotes modesty in a particular way. For instance, there's a tribe in Papua New, Gu New Guinea where uh, all the members of the tribe wear very little clothing. The, the, the men wear very little clothing, only just one little garment covering up the groin area. I'm trying to be not too graphic here, but you understand where I'm going. But the women of the tribe, they go topless, but they weave grass skirts 
So they have much more of their bodies covered. And this particular tribe lives up in tree houses that are more than 20 feet off the ground. And so they construct ladders to get up to their tree houses. And it is their custom that anytime people are going to ascend the ladder, the men always go first and then the women second for the sake of modesty because of the skirt issue there. So that would be an example that you have a different way that a different culture promotes it, but it's still a principle. Modesty is being promoted that is there, but it looks different from culture to culture in some of the smaller kinds of ways. God has written these kinds of principles even into creation, and we can see it the world over and even from history. So coming back to the scriptures then, let's ask the question, how does the Bible teach women to act like women? Where do we learn what that looks like? Well, let me show you some passages that we can consider. Uh, for instance, if you're still in Genesis 1, you can look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 for a moment. Genesis 2, 18. And notice what is said there, still part of the creation account. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And then he created Eve. Eve was created to be a helper to Adam and one that was suitable, one that fit with Adam. This is where we get the idea, you may remember, of complementarianism. It's, it's a big, long-sounding word, but basically what it means is that God made male and female to complement one another, to fit together. And that addresses not just anatomy. The anatomy preaches things beyond the anatomy. So complement, as we're using it there, is not complement like to say something nice to somebody. It's complement with an E, and what it means is to fit together like a puzzle piece. Or like when a key fits into a specific lock, it's the right one. It complements one another. God has designed this. Where Adam was strong, Eve would be weak. Where Adam was weak, Eve would be strong. So, so take things like we mentioned with the men that are demonstrated from scripture, from nature, and then see some of the ways that the strengths, weaknesses, and distinctions of the female were designed by God to complement the man. Adam was given a job. Eve was to help. Adam was made to lead. Eve was designed to follow. Now, some people hear that and they think of it as a negative. That is ignorant. In battle, there must be a commanding officer and then soldiers who follow him into battle. It, it's ignorant to think that following is always a negative thing. Someone must lead and someone must follow. God designed this. Adam was made for a mission. Eve was made for the missionary to support him. Adam was made to give children. Eve was made to bear those children. Adam was made to provide for those children. Eve was designed to feed those children. Adam was designed to build the house. Eve was designed to beautify the house. Adam builds, Eve beautifies. Man fights in battle, woman heals the wounds. There's a reason why the, the, the nursing field is dominated by females. Why is that? Nurturing. Nurturing, this is part of the wheelhouse that God has designed in his creation. Without nurturing in its many different forms, society would collapse. 
Society would collapse, nurturing in things not only like mothering, but in, in preschool teachers and elementary teachers and nursing, etc., etc. Coming back to our list, man pursues and woman is pursued. Now let me pause on that one as well because I'm, I'm, part of what I'm trying to do in this is not only to show you what the Bible says, but to show you the beauty of what God has made. I want to make an appeal in particular to you young girls, but it applies to all of us. The basic concept of romance is built on the principle of a man pursuing a woman and, and not the other way around. Paul Washer uses the illustration uh, to young girls, and he says, imagine one of these scenes from a Jane Austen novel where there's a boy who likes a girl. She kind of thinks she might like him. They sit next together at a meal. He reaches for a drink, and as he does, his hand accidentally brushes just the back of her hand, and she feels electricity. She almost gasps at the wonder of it all. What is that? That's romance. And listen, it's beautiful. You know, so us men, even though we don't crave romantic stories and we put up with them because we love our wives, don't crave those sort of things, we men still understand that it is beautiful. Okay, it is, it is beautiful. And part of the point is, Paul Washer's point in making this is, there are certain things that make romance possible and then there are things that destroy romance and bring the death of romance. It was designed by God that men would pursue the woman, that a man would work to pursue the woman and to win the heart of the woman. He would have to put in effort. He would have to work to find ways to make her feel special and write her letters and buy her flowers and uh, convince her to go out with him and maybe even chase her for a long time and convince her to go out with him. Romance is built on the principle that she is valuable. And he is the treasure hunter. She's the treasure. He's the treasure hunter. Ladies, this is how God designs you. And it is to be that you know your worth and you know that it is a good thing for him to work to pursue you. So what happens when feminism comes along and encourages women to act like men and particularly sinful men? What happens when feminism promotes women taking charge and having meaningless liaisons. What happens when the boy no longer has to do anything? Because he, she chases him. Or it just requires no work. What you have is the death of romance. What you have is the death of something beautiful that God made. Have you talked to the average teenage boy in a while? I don't mean the ones from our church. I'm saying the ones out there. Ask them something about romance. They don't know the first thing. They don't know the first thing. Why is that? One would be a failure of fathers, but a second would be, in our culture right now, they don't have to try. They don't have to work. The teenage boy texts, which first of all should be an embarrassment, okay? <laughs> Back in our day, you had to do it face to face. I'm just kidding, okay? Uh, but the text, which should be an embarrassment like there, text like an ape, and I'm not trying to be crass, but I am trying to be honest here. He texts, send nudes, and she does. That's the death of romance. That's the death of something beautiful that God made. Do you see what happens when God's order 
is rejected. It is an ugly chaos when the glory that God created is hated, abandoned, and rejected. We'll continue to think through the Bible in ways that we can see the vision of beautiful femininity. Another passage we would reference would be Psalm, excuse me, Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31 is kind of like the David's mighty men passage to men. Okay, David's mighty men, a vision of great masculinity to men. Proverbs 31, uh, a vision of, of great femininity towards women. Uh, she nurtures. She wisely handles the family's finances. She prudently spends. She makes wise decisions. She sews clothing for the family. She supports her husband. She is strong in character and conviction. She speaks wisdom. She knows the word of God. She prepares food for the household. She labors long into the night. Uh, here's a quote. She looks well to the ways of her household and her ch husband and children rise up and call her blessed in the city gates. Everything I just mentioned there comes right out of Proverbs 31. I didn't list all of them. But then the New Testament comes along and teaches and takes some of those things and goes even further in places like Titus 2, where we're told that older godly women are to teach the younger women how to love their husbands and love their children and be workers in the home. And so the same that I addressed young men, let me say a word to you, you, want, you young women, a, a word of exhortation. See the glory of God's design and reject the substitute that is being fed to you by the world. Reject masculinity for yourself. Masculinity should be rejoiced in, in your husband or future husband. But reject it for yourself. Femininity in a man is ugly. But in a woman, it is beautiful. It is God's design. It's God's glory and wisdom on display. Rejoice in God's design. It's beautiful. Live it. Know it. Delight it. Don't be embarrassed about it. Delight in it. Reject the message of the world. And if, but if you're going to do that, you've you got to know that there are these 10,000 voices in all kinds of ways that are going to make you feel inferior if you pursue biblical femininity. You have got to be okay with smiling while being insulted. You've got to be okay with, with going forward and rejoicing in God's design, knowing that it is good, knowing that it will result in the greatest joy and fulfillment, and knowing that you are honoring him. And Christian parents, we need to be careful that our message isn't just a little bit of a tweaked Christianized version of what the world's message is. If with our daughters, we're constantly just promoting career, 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 but a Christian version of it, that's not the biblical message. That's the world's message. We need to be rejoicing in things like big families, and uh, uh, not, not putting off a number of children so that I can focus on my career, but the other way around, rejoicing in lots of babies and seeing the glory of God's design. We need to be promoting the right worldview and not listening to all the voices in the culture telling us all of the other kinds of things and don't have too many babies because of carbon footprint and all of that nonsense. <laughs> Believe the Bible. Believe the Bible. Christian, let's see God's design, rejoice in it, live it, and let's defend it. Let's speak it. Let's know it. Let's clarify it. And while the world looks at us like idiots, and even may even spit on us while we do it, let's smile as we love our wives, as we live out family life, as we do God's design. This cultural moment will pass. 
This insanity, it will not be there forever. When this cultural moment passes, Jesus will still be building his church. The scriptures will still be holding true because the word of God lasts forever and the gospel will still be advancing. What we need is to hold fast and not fall. And for you who are not in Christ, for you who have never turned to Christ to be saved, you need to know that the way you will be made right with God is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must receive him. You must trust in him. And you must receive him in all of his roles and offices and who he is. One of his roles, one of his offices is that he is a prophet. Now that's not all that he is. He is Lord, the divine son of God, savior, but he is prophet. And that means that every word he speaks is true. And it is not acceptable and it is not saving faith to say, well, I recognize that there is a Jesus and he rose from the dead, but when he spoke on sex and male and female, I disagree with him. That's not acceptable. That's not faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus, true saving faith, the kind that will bring you to God, forgive you of your sins and make you right, is a faith that embraces him as Lord, Savior, prophet, priest, king, and all of who he is. Look to Christ and trust in him. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, I ask that you will help us in, in, in all these matters we've, we've talked through. So uh, whatever I've said today that is untrue or unhelpful, I pray that it will be forgotten and scratched. Whatever I've said that is true, I pray, oh God, you'll bring us deeper. Bring us deeper in our understanding. Bring us to faithfully live your word, to speak it and defend it. We pray that you would even give us opportunities for this. Help us as we're gonna dismiss, bless our fellowship, send us out uh, as your voices, evangelists, missionaries into the world. Give us grace, O oh God. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.